Hey guys. <laughs> Welcome to your second breakout. Okay. I'm Hayden. Nice to meet you guys. Wish I could meet all of y'all. This is Rich Bowman. Wow. Give it up. He is a campus pastor at the downtown Durham campus for Summit Church. Um, he'll be leading um, this breakout. Before we get started, we wanted to alive in our bodies after our post-lunch slumber. So we're going to play a game that you might be familiar with, but with a spontaneous twist, okay? It's going to be called Two Lies and One Truth, all right? So first, yeah, you can say them. You can say them because it it might be helpful for you to say them. I've lived in 20 countries. I have eight kids. I was paralyzed from the neck down. Okay. Does, do, you need them, do you need him to repeat any of them? Which of those are true? Yeah. Only one is true. One is true. The second one? That I second have eight one, kids. Eight kids. The first one? I live in 20 countries. Okay. First. Okay. No one's going I, with the I'm, third? So. Third. Oh, you think third? Wow. Hot take. Love. Third? Right. Third? Okay. All right. Drum roll, please. It is the third. Whoa! It is the third. Wait, Rich, that's incredible. Can you please tell us a quick story on how that happened? It's not a quick story. I will say they they all actually happened three times in my life. Um, I had to have surgery on my spine. I was born with a condition called spinal stenosis that makes me more prone to something like that um, in high contact environments. And I played football all the way through college. And so that is kind of how it happened. But it is a part of my um, testimony and how the Lord used it to to bring me to Christ. So, um, yeah. Praise God. Praise God. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Rich. We're excited to hear uh, you speak. Give it up, guys. Thank you, Aiden. Um, Hey, really quickly, I want to do a book giveaway. This is one of my uh, favorite books. It's called Gospel Primer. And so I have two of the same books. The book giveaway, the first one will be for the person who has the closest birthday to today. So who could that be? Any birthday? Yours is on Wednesday? Anybody? Your mom? She's not here, bro. (laughs) My man back there, what's your name? All right, brother, come get your book. All right, the second one is for the person who has been walking with Jesus for the shortest amount of time. So if you got saved today, then you in luck. All right, anybody got saved today? No? What about yesterday? All right, who's been walking with Jesus for less than a year? Less than a year? Man, the back row is killing it today. All right, bro, come get your book. All right, listen, uh, I I hate to make y'all do this because y'all already have sat down, um, but then I kind of don't hate that y'all have to do this. I want to make our time as interactive as possible. And so it's going to be a little bit of me talking, um, but also a little bit of you interacting with one another. And if we have time, I'm going to open it up for Q&A at the end. But I would love for y'all to do me a favor. I need you to get into groups of three. And so move your chair, stand up, sit down, whatever you need to do. I just want you to get into groups of three, okay? Ready, set, go. All right. All right, now that we are in groups of three, now that we are in groups of three, I want you to repeat this after me. All right, I want you to repeat this after me. 
God has done what the Bible says he has done. I am what the Bible says I am. God will do what the Bible says he will do. All right, one more time. God has done what the Bible says he has done. And I am who the Bible says I am. And God will do what the Bible says he will do. <laughs> All right, I want to use those three declarations to help frame the promises of God that I think are necessary for us to persevere in the pursuit of holiness. The reality of holiness is that sometimes it can feel like an unattainable end. And if you're like me, you know what it's like to open up the word of God and begin to compare yourself to what God says or even compare yourself to other people and to begin to doubt and question if you actually are even saved. If you're like me, you know what it's like to feel as if you're hanging on by a thread because you can't seem to get over some sin struggle in your life. And it's as if you take three steps forward. And then you take two steps back and you begin to question if the race is even worth running. And so in our weakest moments, when we're laden and burdened with despair and discouragement, and we're feeling the weight of guilt, what are the promises of God that help us get up and put one foot in front of the other and keep persevering? What was the first declaration we said? Yes, God has done what the Bible says he has done. This is all about looking back and trusting the promises of God that he has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. So I want you to write this down. Perseverance and holiness is sustained by ongoing trust in God's finished work through Christ. Perseverance and holiness is sustained by ongoing trust in God's finished work through Christ. Why? Because your ability to live in victory over sin's power is never disconnected from remembering the victory that we already have over sin's penalty through Jesus Christ. It was Milton Vincent, Vincent the author of the book I just held up, Gospel Primer, who says this, as long as we are weighed down with the guilt of our sins, we will be functionally captive to them. And we will often find ourselves recommitting the very sins about which we feel most guilty. The devil knows that if he can keep us tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate us with sin's power. What God has done for us in the gospel, however, slays sin at this root point and thereby cancels sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it first liberates me from sin's guilt. And preaching forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as the nullifier of sin's power in my life. And so your temptation is going to be to give up under the weight of guilt and under the weight of condemnation because of your sinful failure. But when you recognize the magnitude with which you have been forgiven, and the magnitude with which you are loved, it actually frees you for obedience. And this is why we say around here that the gospel is not just the means by which we are vertically saved, 
The gospel is also the means by which we are horizontally transformed. Okay? In Titus 2.11, this is what the Apostle Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, the grace of God demonstrated in the gospel has come to us, saving our souls and also training us to live holy lives. Therefore, the gospel is not just the front door or the entrance point into God's kingdom, but it is the pathway through which we live the entire Christian life. It's not just the means of our salvation. It is also the means of our transformation. It's not simply deliverance from sin's penalty. It is also freedom from sin's power. Right? So it's important to perpetually gaze at what God has done for us through Christ in the gospel, those fulfilled promises of God. I wasn't going to draw this illustration, but I will, or this diagram, but I will, because maybe it's helpful. So here's the spectrum. This spectrum right here is the holiness of God. My handwriting is awful, so forgive that. This spectrum is our sinfulness. In the middle, that represents the cross. This is the beginning of the Christian life. Okay? You come in awareness of God's holiness, and you also come into awareness of how sinful you are in comparison to his holiness. But then you lean upon Jesus on the cross. What happens over time in the Christian life as you grow in awareness of God's holiness and as you grow in awareness of your sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You grow in your appreciation and your love for what Jesus Christ has done for you. And ironically, when you do that, you walk in holiness. You walk in godliness. You walk and the power and the freedom you have been given through Jesus Christ, all right? And so what I want you to do right now, in your groups of three, I want you to actually search the scriptures, and I want each person in the group to find one thing that the Bible says God has done for you and accomplished for you in Jesus Christ, all right? So I'm going to give you like three to five minutes to do that. All right, what are, what are some of the... What are some of the passages you guys, what are some of the passages you guys found in the scriptures? You can just call them out, quote them, say them. What are some of the things you found? It's mindful of humanity. Cares for humanity. Elohim is powerful, almighty God who created and sustains and provides for the universe, for all of creation is mindful of you and cares for you. What else did what else did you find? That's hard for me to believe because all my hair is pears. Okay? God is intimately and intricately aware and involved in our lives that he knows the amount of hair that we have on our head. Maybe one more. Amen. You will rise with Christ. 
we share in his resurrection. Death is not the end for us. Death is actually a homecoming for us to be with the Savior that we were all created for. All of these things are yes and amen in Christ Jesus because he shed his blood for you. When you grasp the reality of the promises, the things that God has accomplished for you in Christ, it compels us to want to serve a God like that. It compels us to want to give our lives away from him. All right. Anybody remember the second declaration? Yeah, I got to say that louder. Come on now. Yes, yes. Write this down. Perseverance and holiness is sustained by embracing your God-given identity in Christ. Perseverance and holiness is sustained by embracing your God-given identity in Christ. Identity is such a huge part in our fight for holiness. Because what you believe God believes about you will shape your pursuit of holiness because words create worlds. If you are someone who's constantly berating yourself and always putting yourself on trial and you think that you're some miserable, wretched sinner that's good for nothing and can never be used by God, you will not walk in holiness. And if you try to, you're going to be pretty miserable doing it because you will always believe that God has you under a microscope just waiting for you to mess up in order to pull you back into his prison cell of disfavor. All right, so you, you may do a bunch of activities. You may do a bunch of things from on, on that on the outside looking in looks really, really good. But you're not going to have a genuine love and affection and joy for serving Jesus. And so, yes, the Bible teaches that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And yes, the wages of our sin, the penalty for our sin is death. But when the Bible talks about those of us who are in Christ, it never says that we are wretched, wicked people. The Bible overwhelmingly declares that we are beloved sons and daughters, that we are children of God, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, loved, blameless. That is our primary identity in Christ. Yes, we sin, but sinner is not our primary identity. One of the most miserable, messed up churches in the New Testament was the church of Corinth. A lot of sexual infidelity. A lot of division. What did Paul say when he opened the letter? Did he say to my fellow sinners? Did he say to you wretched people? No, to my beloved brothers, to beloved saints. A saint is someone who has been set apart. Holiness is being set apart. He's calling them the identity that they have in Christ. And I really do believe that one of the most strategic ways that Satan tries to hinder our pursuit of holiness is by attacking our promised identity in Christ. Satan knows our weaknesses. He knows that if he can get us to doubt who we are, then he can get us to hinder or he can hinder our passion and zeal for holiness. He knows right, that if he can just quench our joy in who we are, then he can also quench our passion for following God. Because who wants to follow a God that believes that God thinks of them 
They're just a wretched, miserable person that's good for nothing. My guess is that some of you have probably had experiences with very critical parents or very critical people in your life. Has there ever been a point when you have been in relationship with somebody who is really critical of you that made you want to love and serve and be with them? Oftentimes it draws us away. And I believe that Satan knows that. And this is why I believe that one of the first things that Satan did when Jesus was commencing his ministry was attack his identity. In Matthew 4, verse 3, Satan said this to Jesus. If you are the son of God, what do you mean if? Satan, what, what are you talking about if he is the son of God? Just a few verses later in context, the father declared over Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So it's not a matter of if he is the son. He is the son because the father declared that over him. And get this. He declared it over Jesus before Jesus did anything. Before Jesus did any ministry. That's because the Christian life is first about being before it is about doing. Doing flows out of our being. We don't work for, we work from. Right? But the same doubt that Satan was trying to get to, to cast on Jesus, I believe it's the same doubt that he's trying to cast in our hearts when it comes to our identity. If you truly are a daughter of God, then why aren't you really in the friend group that you really want to be a part of? If, if you truly are a son of God, then why do you keep getting overlooked? If you, if you truly are a child of God, then why does your life seem like it's such a mess? Why? Why is there so much tension and brokenness in your family? And the moment that we begin to think you're right, I truly was a child of God, then this wouldn't be so. It's the moment that we will not pick up our cross and pursue holiness. We would just slowly drift deeper and deeper and deeper into a lifestyle that is contrary to the one that God has called us to because we're going to be laden with doubt, despair, and discouragement. Like, can you imagine had Jesus for one moment just doubted? Hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe if I am, maybe I'm not the son. How would that shape, would have shaped the trajectory of his ministry? Right? And here's the thing about Satan. Satan knows scripture. He knows it probably better than all of us combined in here. So he has the right content sometimes, but oftentimes just the wrong context. Satan will take scripture out of context, might have a little bit of truth in it, but out of context, it's a lie. And it will slander the name of God to you. It will slander you to God. All right. If Jesus would have thought for one moment, if he would have forgotten the declaration, the promised identity that he had, that he was a beloved son, with whom the father was already well pleased before he did anything. It could have been a different story for you and I. And maybe you didn't, maybe you think, oh, it wouldn't have been that bad, but consider Satan doing this a, another time in, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3, in the creation narrative. All it took was for Satan to speak to Eve two times and for her to doubt God once and then for Adam to doubt God. 
and for them to act on that doubt about the goodness and the love of God. And it condemned the whole world. And it led the whole world into destruction. All right? Praise God that when Jesus was tempted, he didn't fall like our first parents did. So that we could be redeemed from the fallen curse of this world. Because had he doubted for one moment, I think it would have been a different story for us, right? Satan hates when we really believe that we are who God says we are, children of God. I remember I was walking with uh, my daughter, who's now seven, and I have a four-year-old as well. I don't have eight children. And for those of you who thought I did, that makes me feel kind of old, man. But I have two kids, seven and four. At the time, they were like, I don't know, five maybe in 15, 16 months, something like that. And I remember my daughter, Elena, we were walking to the front yard, and my daughter, Elena, just bolted past her younger sister and was like, Daddy, Daddy, I'm faster than Isla. And I immediately looked at her and I said, Elena, it is not a competition. And the Holy Spirit in that moment, it's just, I literally felt like the Lord just spoke to me and said, Exactly. In a very gentle, fatherly like voice. Exactly. And in that moment, I realized something about my daughter that taught me something about myself. My daughter was trying to perform for my praise. She was trying to perform for my approval. She thought that if she could just beat her sister to the front yard, and I noticed it, that daddy was just going to be super proud and super happy with her. And here's the thing. Right, it's, it's right for children to want the approval of their father. Right? I'm not saying that my daughter was wrong in that. And I do approve my children when they do awesome, you know, in the silly things. But in the moment, God was trying to teach me something about my relationship with him. That oftentimes, I'm, I'm performing for his praise. I'm performing for his approval. That even in my pursuit of holiness, it becomes this thing that I'm doing to earn him versus this thing that I do to simply enjoy him and to live the life that he has called me to that is full of joy and peace and goodness that he he desires for me. And I realized that about my daughter. Oftentimes what happens in my relationship with God, that instead of me working from this position of being a son, It's as if I'm working to try to be the son that he wants me to be, right? And and here's the thing. God God is pleased with holiness. God is pleased with obedience, okay? And if you aren't pursuing that, that is problematic. But obedience and holiness should be in response to the gospel, not a replacement of the gospel in response to the gospel, not a replacement of the gospel. And the only way you get that order correct is if you truly believe in the declared promises of God over you that you are a son and a daughter and a child and that you're already holy and blameless before the throne and you're already seated at the right hand of God on high. And that all your sins in the past, present, and future have been washed away and forgiven and thrown into the sea of forgiveness. And that God doesn't see you through the lens of what you do and don't do, but he sees you through the lens of what Christ has already done on the cross and that you are righteous before him. 
That'll make you want to get up and pursue holiness. I want to wrap this section up by quoting something or reading something from a book that I'm reading right now. The author asked the question, what does it mean to see yourselves as God sees you? Contrary to our culture, the biblical doctrine of grace humbles us without degrading us. And it elevates us without inflating our egos. It tells us that apart from Christ, we have, we, we have nothing. It can do nothing of eternal value. We are spiritually impotent and inadequate without him. And we must not put our confidence in the flesh. Grace also tells us that we have become new creatures in Christ. Having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, life and love. In him, we now enjoy complete forgiveness from sins and limitless privileges of unconditionally accepted members of God's family. We are no longer defined by the pain of our bounded past, but we are defined by the joy of our unbounded future. We have a new heredity in Christ, and our future is secure because our new destiny as members of his body. We are the family of God. The family of God. Your identity matters. I want to challenge you. Every morning you wake up. Remember I mentioned this in passing. Words create worlds. Words create worlds. You believe you are this miserable, wretched person. Good for nothing. Your life will reflect that world. But you believe that you are loved and adored and delighted by the Father, and you are the apple of his eye because of what he has done for you in Christ. And it will change the way that you live. Words create worlds. I want to challenge you every morning. One simple thing you can do. As soon as your feet hits the floor, is to just quote your identity over yourself. I'm not even saying, I'm not even challenging you to do that for multiple times throughout the day. But can you imagine if you did it for one day, for 365 days a year? That's 365 times in a year that you have declared over yourself who you are in Christ. I really believe by faith, you're, the way you live will, will change. All right, now what I want you to do is I want you to search the scriptures and find the things that God declares over you. The promises and the declarations that he says are yours in Christ Jesus. Who are you? Find those really quickly. All right, what are, what are some of the, the declarations and promised identities that you all found in scripture? Amen. Yeah, no, no longer slaves. Slaves to Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin and death, right? Free, free at last, free at last. <laughs> what else? Friendship with Jesus. It's beautiful that the Savior would be friend to you and I. Any of y'all friends in here with other people in here? Y'all good friends? Imagine, imagine just the sweetest moments of y'all friendship, man, where y'all laugh, y'all just getting along well, y'all just, man, kicking it, chilling, just life is good, right? 
just the like joy of an imperfect relationship like that is just magnitude <laughs> in context of a relationship with Jesus who calls his friends. And in that passage, he lays down his life for you. <laughs> what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> what else did y'all find? Yeah, amen. We were past tense. You in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. You're not dead, you're alive. You're not separated, you're joined to Christ. Right? Now, I think Paul, in that passage, he's reminding the church who they once were, because we can sometimes forget, you know, where we came from and what Christ brought us from. But man, we don't have to live in that. And we've been free from that in Christ. Right? All right, last section here. What's the last declaration? Y'all remember it? (laughs) God will do what the Bible says he will do. All right? God will do what the Bible says he will do. And you can write down this last point. Perseverance and holiness is sustained by clinging to the coming hope you have in Christ. And I don't want to do a lot of explanation here. I actually just want to read the promises of God over you. Okay? But before I do that, listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 4 through 5. As he introduces this letter to the church of Colossae, he says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what motivated their love? Hope. The hope that they had laid up for them in heaven. At the end of the day, holiness is about a life of love. The greatest commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, mind. And love our neighbor as ourselves, right? You can sum up all the commandments, the commandments for godliness, the commandments for justice, the commandments for holiness, the commandments for righteousness, and those two commandments to love. And what was it that motivated and compelled their love? It was hope. Hope. I just want you to listen to some of these promises of hope as I read them over you. 1 Peter 1. 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's a store, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Are you longing for his appearing? There's a reward for you. This is my favorite. Jude 1, 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority for all time now and forevermore. You know why I love that passage? It's because he says he will present you for the presence of his glory with great joy. Some of you fear the day that you will stand before God because you think he's going to run a list of all the ways you have failed. That's not true. Because all the ways that we have failed, he's covered. And he's going to walk you down that aisle and escort you to the throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God is not going to have a scowl on his face. He's going to have a smile on his face. Welcome home, my love. Welcome home, my child. Welcome home, my daughter. Welcome home, my son. Hope, 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 hope. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have the promises of God, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hope makes you holy. Hope makes you holy. Amen? All right, that's all I have for you. <laughs> Any questions? I want to open it up for Q&A. And it's fine if y'all don't have questions. I get, I get somebody like two minutes to ask the first question, and if we don't get one in two minutes, then we'll just, we'll just end it, land the plane. Uh, yes, ma'am. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. Yeah, so I actually grew up in a home uh, where my mom had me in church every Sunday, um, I yeah was at church on Sunday. I was at church on Tuesday for prayer night. I was on church on Wednesday for Bible study, and then probably there for some type of youth night on Friday or Thursday. And so I grew up in the church. Um, simultaneously, my father, on the other hand, is not a believer, never has been a believer, um, and is still not one today. And he kind of in- introduced me more to a world of just freedom uh, to go out and explore and learn and just do whatever I wanted to do. And so on one hand, had my mom who was like, son, if I can keep you in the church, I can keep you off the streets. Um, my dad was like, son, you need to experience what the street life is like um, so that you, as you grow up, you're just not, you know, a deer in headlights when you see and experience things. And so my father gave me a lot of rope as a young, uh, as a young man. Uh, played football all my life. That was my idol, my God, my love, um, everything. I was so religious, though, and, foot, all, and football was like, my God, I literally would um, get what we would call 
um, in the Pentecostal church, anointing oil. Um, and I would draw crosses on my head, on my knees, on my hand, on my feet before every game. And my prayer would be, Lord, help me get an interception today. <laughs> Lord, help me not get injured today. Protect my knees. All very self-focused, right? All very self-centered, all very, you know, much centered on me trying to use God to attain a certain status and influence through the sport of football. I go to college um, and then my uh, junior year, first game of the season, um, I suffered an injury when I was paralyzed. That's my story behind being paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and I had to have surgery on my spine. And the doctor gave me two options. You either have surgery and you attempt to come back and play for two more years, or this can be done. Um, I didn't want to be done. Football was everything to me, but it was the first time that God opened my eyes to how empty of a person I was um, and that I put all my eggs in the basket of football, all the eggs of my identity, all the eggs of my hope, all the eggs of my meaning in life. Um, and I just realized, man, if I don't have football, I really don't know who I am. Um, I really don't know what to do with my life. And from there, it was just a journey of the Lord um, really exposing me uh, to who he is and, and just, you know, the goodness of Christ and the gospel. Um, and I think the moment, I don't remember the exact moment when I got saved, but I do remember there was a particular moment when I was at a church service and um, whatever we reason, I was uh, really, I was just burdened with, with the weight of my sin. And I remember Matthew 5, 5 came to mind. Blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And in that moment, it's like the Lord freed me to actually be spiritually poor and impoverished and to just literally throw all of my weight upon him. Have you ever heard the kind of saying like run to Christ? I was kind of like, God, but I can't run. It was like, well, walk to Christ. But I just felt like I couldn't even walk. Well, crawl to him. Well, I feel like I can't even crawl. I'm so messed up. It was just like, well, just fall in his direction. And he's strong enough to, to carry you. And from that point on, I've just, yeah, I've just been following Jesus and he's the greatest passion of my life. So, Aiden, how do you fight for holiness when the people around you aren't? Um, man, that's a great question. We, I, th I think a lot of this, I think a lot of that fight and that battle is won in the context of community with other believers. So, for example, if you are in the context of unbelievers and people who aren't following the Lord, Right, you, you probably, the likelihood of you actually winning them to Christ, the likelihood of you actually not being influenced by some of their behavior and actions, if you do not have other community that you are doing life with in accountable relationships and people who are walking with you in Jesus, the likelihood of you actually growing and reaching them in that context is probably going to be very slim. Because... There is a type of allurement to the world that we sometimes underestimate. There's a certain uh, deceptiveness and power that Satan has that we can sometimes underestimate. And, oh, shoot. That would have been bad. Thanks, brother. 
See, community right there, you know? <laughs> Listen, good example. I need a brother like that in my life to say, hey, Rich, you've been hanging out with them, but it looks like you're about to fall over the edge, right? He stopped this table from falling over the edge, right? You need people in your life, I think, to help you actually reach other people um, in your circles of, uh, of uh, people that aren't followers of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We're all prone. We, we, we are wired certain ways, right? Um, there, there are those of us who are probably more introverted. And, you know, you're kind of like, man, I want to stay in my huddle, my holy huddle of community. Right. And I, and I, I push against the world. I push against those who are, you know, I did that when I first came to Christ. I was like, man, I ain't going to no clubs. I ain't, I ain't hanging out with, you know, my guy George that I grew up with. I ain't hanging out with JJ. I'm not doing all that, you know. And now I actually really regret that I had that type of reaction because I lost friendships with him. Right. But it was it was kind of in a, in a posture of, you know, thinking like, man, I don't want to be stained. Like, I don't want to be influenced by the negativity. Right. But then the, the others of you, you're like, nah, man, like I, man, my whole dorm is unbelievers. And man, I'm, I'm with it. Like, I'm a light in the midst of darkness. You know, like, take me out. Like, I'll go out on the block. I'll, I'll do whatever. The temptation is for this person to never actually have the, the faithfulness and the courage to reach the world. And the temptation for this person is to never, like, take some time to actually be over here with, like, believers that they need to be with. And what happened, what needs to happen is a marrying of both, right? That we need to learn how to be away. We also need to learn how to engage, right? Because we're in the world. We're not of the world, but we're in the world, right? Jesus ate with sinners, right? It's okay, right, to, to, to love and to embrace people who don't believe what we believe. Right? It, and you should respect them as human beings and give them the dignity that they deserve, right? I'll, my neighbor next door, he was, um, he knows that I'm a pastor and he was like, hey man, um, I, I think we would love to, you know, maybe like come to church sometime uh, because now that I have a son, I'm looking, you know, for him to have some friendships. And he was like, you're a pastor. Is that a good idea? And I was like, well, you, you're more than welcome to come visit, you know? And he was like, but I don't agree with a lot of things in the book. And I said, man, you know what? It's okay that you don't agree. I want you to know that we will be the kindest people that you disagree with. We will be the kindest people that you disagree with. And he said, man, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's the type of, you know. And now, look, listen, I, yeah, like, yeah, he, he came over. He and his wife and his family came over not too long ago. You know, and I want him to think, like, man, yeah, we're, like, we're normal people, bro. Like we play games, we you know, we watch TV, we eat, we you know we do things that y'all do. We're we're not just trying to gospel bomb you every single time, right? I want to enjoy you and interact with you as a person, right? And I'm praying for you, and I and when the door opens, man, I, I want to be faithful to share Christ and reflect Christ and all. And so, but but I said a lot of stuff there. I don't even know if to answer your question, but I will say though, like I, I do think you 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 will you will probably fall if you do not have a consistent, healthy community of believers that you are constantly engaging with and you are only in the context of unbelievers. Like I, it's, it is really hard for me to believe that you will actually be like faithful to, to, your, to the Lord in that context if that is just where you kind of live and dwell. So 
units. Yep. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I literally just had a conversation with a sister of mine um, days ago, sat down with her and said, hey, I want you to know I love you. I want you to know that I'm for you. Um, I want you to know that I'm speaking with the tone I'm speaking in because I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm about to say as if I don't love you and I'm not for you, right? But hey, here's what you say you believe. I was going to go to All right. Here's what you say you believe. Here's how you actually live. So what do you actually believe? Right? It's a great way to kind of probe the heart. Because if someone is saying, man, I'm a Christian, man, I follow the Lord. You're like, okay, brother or sister. Here's what you say you believe. Right? But here's how you live. So do you actually believe what you're saying you believe about? Holiness, godliness, the gospel, right? Another thing that I do is I, I tend to ask people, um, like, hey, what, what, do you, what do you believe about the Bible? A lot of people will say, man I, I, man, I believe the Bible is God's word. You know, it's the final authority in my life, man. I submit to the Bible. Well, hey, tell me, tell me a little bit about how you use the Bible and prayer to get to this decision and way you're, like, living right now. A lot of people will be like, man, I didn't. Well, man, hey, here, here are a few passages that I would love for you to go and read and pray through, and then let's have this conversation again, right? And so, man, I think those are kind of two practical ways in conversation to really get to the heart, you know, of what is going on. And, so, and then you got to understand, man, that like, you're not the Holy Spirit. I ain't the Holy Spirit. None of us are the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit sends Nathans to correct Davids, right? But the Holy Spirit doesn't, like, we, we're, the Nathans doesn't change David's hearts, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about there? Okay. Um, right? No, the Holy Spirit, or sorry, Nathans don't change David's hearts. The Holy Spirit does that, right? And so, man, you, you, you're faith, you be faithful to the truth, but you also got to learn to surrender and trust that, God, this is your doing ultimately, and that, God, you are the one who's sovereign over this person's heart and life. And, God, I've just been faithful to do, you know, what I'm called to do as a brother and as someone who's called to love, you know, the community of God. And so, um, you know, I think it's important to understand that legalism, grace, grace is not opposed to works, okay? Grace is opposed to earning. Time up. Okay. Oh, <laughs> like one minute. Um, grace is not opposed to works. Grace is opposed to earning. Okay. And so I think, I think we, you have to learn to teach them the difference between like challenging them towards obedience, but making sure that they don't interpret that as you calling them to like earn their salvation. Right. That, that, that's a really, like all of us struggle, struggle with that at some level. Right. And that, that's the difference. I think to get more theological here justification and sanctification, right? Justification, you ain't got nothing to do with. It is all the working of Jesus Christ, right? That is all about our position, our vertical position before God. Ephesians 2, right? Everything you read in there, but God, 
being rich in mercy, right? It had nothing to do with like you, you're just throwing yourself upon Christ, right? With the small little finite faith that you got. But it's leaning on Jesus Christ. We're justified, ju- legally declared righteous before God. And now he treats us just as if we've never sinned, right? That's justification. Nothing to do with that. But sanctification is a partnership. That is why in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? So he's telling you to work, but he's also saying it's him working in you. And so what it is, is God is saying, work out what I have put in you, right? All of y'all in here got muscles, right, that God has put in you. But if you want to work those things out to build them up, what do you got to do? You got to hit the gym. If you don't hit the gym, what's going to happen? You just won't bulk up. You won't, your muscles won't get stronger, right? And so I think you have to help them see the difference between justification and sanctification, right? And the difference that meant grace is not opposed to works. It's opposed to earning. Works are good, right? And then um, the other thing is that legalism, we can sometimes associate legalism to like um, to, to, to doing works. Legalism is not doing works. Legalism is doing works for the purpose of trying to earn salvation. Okay? That is legalism. You have to do this in order to get that. Right? You have to do this in order for God to love, approve, save you. That is legalism. Legalism is not calling someone to live out the call to which they have been called to in Christ Jesus.